You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. i got to tell you something, people. Today in New Jersey, it's hot. But what's funny is people are already bitching. They're going, oh, my God, it's so hot. And I'm thinking, people, it's summer. It's supposed to be hot. The same people bitch if it was 78. They'd say it's too cool. So I just think everyone likes to bitch about the weather. For me, I'm just glad it's sunny. Anyway, we have a great uh, we have a great show today. We have a gentleman who uh, has been been in the in the limelight for a long time, and he's a uh, was a lead he's a lead singer of a great band called Modern English. And my guest is Robbie Gray. How you doing, Robbie? I'm doing fine, thanks. Steve. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm sitting over here now. How's the weather in England right now? It's really warm. It's lovely. It's a proper summer's day. It's been sunny for about the last week. It's not something we see too much of, so it's enjoyable. Exactly. So, your band, I know you're going on tour again. Now, when when did you start singing? What got you into the music business? Were you always a good singer? No, I'm still not really. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, punk rock's what got me into the music business. Um, when, when I was a young teenager, bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash, they kind of woke everybody up in England. And then that's when I started making music with my friends. So goes back to about 1976, something like that. Now, what was it like being a teen and living during the the punk scene? It must have been a great feeling, but because you were on the edge of something new. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, looking back at it now, it's even more amazing, really. I mean, you know, Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister. Uh, Reagan, I think, was your um, president at the time. And uh, England was in yeah, turmoil, really. It was very... There's a lot of strikes going on and things like that, so it brought out this energy from the youth that spawned all this this music. Uh, very exciting, very, very exciting. There's lots of bands popping up every week. All of a sudden you had thousands of bands, you know, you name them, they're all playing still now. The Cure, Joy Division were there, New Order now, uh, Echo and the Bunny Men, all the bands that came out of the punk rock explosion, you know, are still around, so it's a very important time. Now, you were in a band called The Lepers, I believe? Yeah, we were when we started, yeah. Now, were you playing hardcore punk, or what were you guys playing at the time, and what did you, what direction did you want to go in? Well, it was all, at the time, at that time, it was punk rock, and we, you know, we weren't very good on our instruments, so it was like, we were learning to play, and I was learning to, you know, use the microphone and write lyrics, so it was more of an experimental time. It, it was really the post-punk scene where we blossomed, we started to, you know, learn our instruments more, and Gary, the guitarist, got effects pedals, and Steve got a few more keyboards, and the sound, you know, that you you would remember from Joy Division back in the day, and Gang of Four, and all these different bands, was the, that was our sound, that's where we were coming through at the same time. So punk rock started us, but our real sort of expansion was the post-punk sound. What was it like being a lead singer in a punk band because I know I talked to Sherry Curry of the Runaways yesterday she said when they played over you know people would spit on them and it was just insane yeah. what was going on with you I mean and, and what kept you going I mean if most people would be spitting them they're going screw this no we just spat back <laughs> <laughs> no I mean it was all it was just part of the fashion of the time I mean everyone was wearing ripped up clothes and safety pins in their noses and their ears and everything like that so it was sort of an anti Social behaviour was the was the order of the day, and the spin just sort of added to that. I remember, you know, playing with a band called the Under. 
of times in Norwich, a city here in England, and um, I was absolutely covered in the stuff. It was all hanging off my nose and my ears. In fact, Joe Stummer, the Clash, he, he got it all from um, some spit that hit him on the face. He actually got it all from it. So, I mean, it must have been crazy. I mean, what made you want to get back on stage? Just because you love the music? Oh, yeah. You mean, not going to let this spit get in the way, are you? I mean, it, you know, there was so much going on at the time that the, the, the spitting was like just a side, you know, little side kind of stall of it all. The, the music was the most important, and the energy that was in the country was pretty amazing, really. When looking back now, it was even more amazing to think about it. Now, when do you decide you want to get a record deal? Or was it, did it just fall in your lap? How did that, what was the process of that happening? Well, it was just such an exciting time. So as a band, we kind of put a couple of pounds in each to go into a, a studio and do a demo. And I'll tell you how, you know, how long ago that was now. The men in the studio were wearing white coats. They were like lab technicians. So it was quite interesting for us as a sort of little post-punk band to be, um, you know, being recorded by these guys, but it worked really well, the demo was good, and we sent it off to a lot of different record companies, we got a lot of refusals, but Beggar's Banquet, which became 4AD, was a record company that showed some interest, so, you know, we went to meet them after just doing the demo, and um, they offered us a deal. Now, these days, it's so easy to... Uh, you can record in your house and you can record here. When you went in there, how long was the studio time? Did they give you a time frame saying, you know, we need this album at this time? Because I know a lot of people take their time now because they have the convenience and it's not as expensive. Yeah, well, they haven't got the pressure of a, of a record company that need to have a product, have they? Which is a good thing, really. They can put music out when and if they want to. Back then, you signed the contract, you had to have a record out every year. That's what the contract said. You might get an advance, you might not. They could give you some money for a wage every week, which they deducted from your royalties. There was lots of ways of doing it, but we were lucky at... the phone's ringing, are We were lucky um, with our record company that, you know, they didn't really give us any pressure. They just gave us the time to do what we wanted, to rehearse, pay, pay for rehearsals. And when we did the album, the first album, Mesh and Lace, Ivo, Ivo Watts Russell, who ran the record company. We were only in there for two weeks. It was a very quick album, but we'd had a lot of time before to write the song, so there wasn't really a lot of pressure on 4AD. It was a good record company. Now, were you happy with the results in your first your first album when you recorded it? It's my favourite album. Yeah, it's, it's my favourite album because it's just all, all us. Um, it's quite noisy. I'm doing a lot of shouting on it. It was an exciting album. We were like, a, we were quite artistic at that point. We were, you know, rattling film cans and using lots of feedback and shouting and screaming. It was good. It's my favourite album. Um, but then, of course, you move on to After the Snow, which is more, you know, the crafted songwriting album which Hugh Jones produced. That's most people's. Well, that's the one that sold the most. That's you know, gone platinum just recently, actually. Now, how did you come up with the name Modern English? Brown thought of it, he just said, what about modern English? And it seemed to fit with 
happening in England at the time, you know, the music that was happening, the kind of political state of the country, it seemed to fit really well what we were doing. So we said yes to that. So the first album you get done, it's your favorite. How was the response of the people? Well, it sold, um, you know, physical sales were 20,000. If you were to sell that now, you'd be number one. <laughs> in the hit parade <laughs> you know I mean it, it, it did really well I mean you know music back then people went to record stores they liked the artwork they wanted to see the artwork and touch the vinyl and they wanted to go and listen to it in a booth before they bought it it was a well received album it was um, compared quite heavily to Joy Division because um, it, it was stark I suppose I know it's um you know, one of the LCD sound system, James Murphy, he really likes that album, the guy from the LCD sound system. And, um, yeah, it's my favorite, definitely. Now, your next album, how did you, did you, you started changing your sound a little bit? That was the producer, really. He, he said, look, we didn't want to make the same album again. We didn't want to do another noisy sort of post-punk album. So he helped us craft songs stopped me shouting into the microphone a bit more, turned the effects off the guitar a little bit, got the drummer to quieten down. And, um, you know, we crafted the songs more. That was all to do with Hugh Jones, the producer. He'd done Heaven Up Here by Echo and the Bunnymen and lots of music at that time. And he had a lot to do with the craft of that album, the, the songwriting side of it. Now, as you're recording again, are you out there performing? Are you playing a lot of dates? No, back then. Oh, back then, yeah. Oh, yeah, we were, you know, professional musicians. We have been all of our lives, really, except for taking a few years off in the early 2000s. But, no, we've, we've always been playing and writing, and it's what we do. We created musicians. You know, luckily I Melt With You, that song has, has helped us financially. Really, really, really has helped a lot. So we're able to do what we like musically. And we did an album in 2017 called Take Me to the Trees, which, uh, you know, we got back to our roots with more of a sort of angular sound, but trying to have the sort of post-punk influences and mesh and lace, but with the songwriting craft of After the Snow, that was well received. Um, not too many sales. We did it with Pledge Music, which is like a crowdfunding site. But, um, it was good. We, we've enjoyed doing that. We got the artwork done by the guy who done all the album artwork for 4AD, Vaughan Oliver. He'd done all the artwork for Mesh and Lace and After the Snow and Ricochet Days. So we managed to get the old... It was all the original members of the band except for, for the drummer. We, we couldn't get him to do it. And it was great fun and we're still writing now. We've been, you know, the original band's been back together now for about eight years. Now, when you recorded that album, uh, how did you feel you grew as a musician? I mean, you brought, you had to bring more to the table because life lessons and stuff like that. How did you guys sync and grow when it came to the whole writing process and making a album that you'll be happy with? Well, it was a real learning curve uh, with the producer, Hugh Jones. After the snow was um, to go from Mesh and Lace, which was noisy, you know, very sort of electric album to go to melt with you and after the snow and songs like this on after the snow the album was totally different we had to really think about what we were doing i had to stop i mean hugh jones i mean the great story about um, i melt with you is is the fact that 
Jones just said to me, talking to the microphone, just talking, you know, he's trying to show me a way of, you know, not thinking I needed to shout at the top of my voice to get my point across. And that, that, I think that's why I melt with you. It's got that, on the verses, it's got a very talkative sort of feel to it. And I think it really works. It's the first vocal I did on After the Snow I melt with you, so it's got a special feel to it, I think. Well, yeah, and it's such a great song, and it's so known. When After you recorded it, when did you feel that it was starting to take off? Well, it started to take off before we'd even left England. You know, I mean, it got... What was happening with, our, with I Melt With You was there's a 12-inch version that was out that was being sold on import and being played on import on American major radio stations before it was even released. So it was a real first time for that. I mean, people, we were getting phone calls. This was before mobile phones. Right. We were getting phone calls from people saying, you know, that all the major radio stations are playing it, and we didn't even have a release in America. So it was really an exciting time for us. And all the major labels in America wanted to sign us because of that. And we ended up signing to Sire Records with Seymour Stein. And um, that started a whole career for us in America, really. So you come over to America. Now, when do you shoot the video? And, and you know, what went into you? Did, was your idea for the video or it was their idea? Or how did you come up with the video? Well, the video cost $1,000 to make. And I remember we carried in the props. Uh, you know, it was just a, just, let's just go into this, this room, play the song live, have a couple of dancers dancing, and see what happens. Now, did it, you know, the, it was so cheaply made. There was more questions asked about the fact that the dancer was a black guy than anything else. Back then, I mean, even back then in the 80s, it was, it was still the interracial thing was still quite strange. And, and the black guy was dancing with a white girl, and the most questions we ever get asked about is that that's just crazy you know how times have changed but, he, but even now I mean you sit there and when you see when you see a mixed couple on a TV commercial you know in America there are some people that get outraged and it's like that's life you know deal with it yeah exactly now the, the song becomes big MTV it's playing it all the time your band is really getting popular when you come to America, what's your what's your game plan? Well, we had management by then who was serious. Side one management out of New York. They were serious guys. In fact, one of those guys is still managing us now, a guy called Josh Seaman. He's uh, our manager now, and he was kind of like the, the younger guy in the management company back in the 80s. They had a really good plan. They got us out on the road, and they just whipped us till we didn't... <laughs> We did like 80 concerts in 100 days on one, one tour. Every time we we would start somewhere, like say we started in New York, we'd go all the way around the country, and by the time we came back, we'd play New York again. All the shows were selling out, so the, the, you know, it was hard work. The, the management company had us working very hard. So your tour in the U.S., the show that's getting popular now, are you getting recognized because everyone watched MTV? I know I watched MTV back then. We had it on religiously. Were you starting to get recognized? Yeah, definitely. I remember sitting in a restaurant in Little Italy, um, having some pasta or something in the restaurant, and this big guy started walking towards me, and I thought he was going to punch me. And he <laughs> just came and said, I, I see you guys on MTV. I see you guys on MTV, you know. <laughs> I mean, that was happening a lot. Um, there was lots of girls around, which was great. Um, you know, there was lots of 
fans. I mean, there was every concert was packed to the rafters. It was they were exciting times for us. Now, when you played on the road back then, when would you put in uh, the song? I mean, because everyone knew it, and it's a matter of it has to be strategically placed. I'm guessing. Yeah, these days we put it last. <laughs> because we figure everyone will stay around to listen to it. <laughs> but um, back then, we didn't, I don't think we, I can't really honestly tell you that, but I think we used to play like fifth in the set or something. So it wasn't at the end of the set, but I do remember, I do remember a long, long time ago, we flew over and we played Spring Break in Florida, and we'd never played America before. And the guy said, you can play outside, you know, on a pontoon outside by the sea, there'll be 10,000 people there. Or you can play in this big room downstairs, and there'll be 5,000 people in there. And we'd never played outdoors before. We were a little underground band in England, you know. So we'd, we wanted to play indoors. And I'll never forget it, because when we played that song that night, the whole room was singing it. I mean, everyone was singing the words when I met with you. Oh, you know, it's amazing, and it's been like that ever since. Well, you know, we're coming, we're coming to your neck of the woods. Um, when is it? We're coming there. We're coming to New Jersey, and we're playing at the Asbury Lanes, Asbury Park. Right, and I'm on close. The, I'm closer yeah, to the place. I'm oh, sorry. August the 29th, we're playing there. Yeah, and I'm closer to the. You're playing the Keswick Theater on August 31st, because I'm closer to Philly. Well, as the song is getting big, it also ends up in Valley Girl. Now, Valley Girl was was was, was a sort of a cult movie. I mean, it, it got a bigger following as it was going and started hitting cable. When something that that happened, did you notice record sales go up? Honestly, we were we were in a bus just going round and round and round. The bus had a bar on it, beds on it, a front room with a TV on it, and we stopped somewhere one day and. Somebody brought a remember VHS tape. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody brought a VHS tape in of the of the film and said, "Look, listen, watch this. This your you know your songs in this film three times, and they play it all the way through in the middle, sort of when they're falling in love scene." I don't know if it helped the record sales at the time. I'm not sure. I know it came out on the soundtrack later on, but after Snow was already selling at that at that point about 10,000 units a day. Yeah. So, you know, it was doing pretty well. Now, you you have that huge success. Now, what happens when you go back in the studio? You have to be exhausted because you've been touring a lot, but I'm sure the record company wanted to capitalize on in the studio. It was terrible. <laughs> we had no songs because they kept us on the road for so long. You know, we didn't have any songs written. Maybe we had two, three songs written. You know, we didn't have an album. I mean, these days you don't have to put an album out. You can just put songs out. But back then it was always 10, 8, 10, 12 tracks for an album. You know, we didn't have that. So we were writing with the same producer, Hugh Jones. He was trying to make a, a more musical album as well. So the kind of immediateness of After the Snow, there's not a lot of overdubs in After the Snow, believe it or not. On Ricochet Days, which was the next album, you know, there's lots of music on it. It was big, it was a bit too involved that, that album really. Hence, it didn't do so, didn't do as well as After the Snow. But 
single hands across the sea did pretty well, but nothing after after the snow, nothing really touched that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, now how does that make you feel as an artist? You know, you sit there and it's, you know, I'm out with you, sells so many, but, you know, you probably wanted to go, as you said, this was more musical. You probably wanted to go in a different direction. You know, how do you decide what you're going to do after a, such a huge hit? Well, you just do what you think's right. You don't, you know, one thing I learned is you, you can't just write another song that's like I Melt With You. You know, you can't say, let's write another I Melt With You. It just, just doesn't work. You can't do that. So what you do is you, you follow your heart, you follow your mind, you, you know, you follow your creative side, you know, and just do what you want. As long as you've got the money, which luckily I Melt With You gave us, so we could do what we, you know, from that moment onwards, we could write pretty much what we wanted to do which is what we do now we, we're more back to our roots than ever I think now so that's good we, you know you just I don't know you just you know we come from a post-punk period we learn how to you know make really good songs and we learn how to play our instruments and we're still like that and, and that's good for us I, I think that's a good period for us to be in a good place to be in as well now what made you guys originally break up? The pressure of all the work, the, the touring. It was just so, you know, you probably hear this from, you know, artists that come on your show a lot. Oh, just, just too much work. We couldn't do it. We were just exhausted. And people started falling out with each other. We'd all been friends since we were kids. We started falling out with each other, and it was terrible, really. And the keyboard player and the drummer got sacked for a little while and I was all mad so we just we just couldn't go on really well you know what's amazing that you said about you know a lot of guys tell me that I think that the record companies would notice that and do something to stop that at least back then I don't care they haven't got a clue I mean most record company people aren't musicians they're businessmen I mean you know back then even more so more, now more they're you know, there are people who love music and may even be, you know, musical. But back then, you know, they didn't care. All they saw was units, you know, dollar signs in their eyes. They're greedy. You know, if, we'd, if they'd have just toured us for six months and given us time to write a new album, we probably would have been able to do another After the Snow or, you know, have as big a hit as I Met With You, but we weren't given that time. So, you know, it's their own fault, really. Now, when you, after you broke up, did were you did you guys still talk because you were friends or were you really at odds because it's just the touring and everything was just hard on you? Oh, everyone just went in different directions. I went to university to study a, an English literature de degree to help him with my writing and stuff. Um, Gary, the guitarist, went to live in Thailand. Steve got married, the keyboard player. Everyone had different stories, you know. Mick joined another band the bass player, Mick Conroy. So it was for a long while until we got back together. And it was Mick Conroy, the bass player. That it's his fault that we got back together. <laughs> what was it? <laughs> he, sent me a, he sent me a picture of his, of his boat where he's living. This was about eight years ago, ten years ago. And it was literally ten minutes from where my home is. And he didn't know that, and I didn't know that. So, of course, we met up. And he said, how about getting the band back together? And that was that. Now, what was it like when you went to university? 
Did people know who you were? Did you get mobbed? Probably every girl no, was. Uh, on... In England, England's a different. We, we we were an underground band in England. You know, there'd be a few people who might know the band, but not. We weren't a commercial success like in America. We were more like an artistic, creative band in England. So when I went to university, I, I was at university at the same time as Sinead O'Connor. Okay. And everybody knew who she was, but nobody knew who I was. Now, why do you think you didn't get the commercial success in UK like you did in America? No idea. I think the After the Snow album, I think it had a sort of pastoral orchestral sound or something like that, you know? And I don't think uh, the British public really wanted to hear that at the time. I think they preferred, you know, the Mesh and Lace album, the more angular sound, the more edgy music, I think, really. Um, I know with you, it's still very popular here. I mean, we still go on the radio and we do concerts in London and things like that, but not as, not as much as America. Now, you guys got back together in 89 and recorded Pillow Lips. What direction were you going in that when you recorded it? Um, we were sort of in between stalls, really, because what was happening in... In Europe, was the dance music thing was taking over. You know, the idea of sampling and using found sounds. You know, the rock thing was sort of not happening in England at that time. It was more like a. It's hard to explain it. Uh, Pillow Lips was a bit of a disaster, really, I think. Um, the only thing that came out of that was re recording I Melt With You, which worked really well, actually, because it got higher in the charts the second time round than the first time. But the rest of the album, there's nothing much to write home about there. I think we've got Mesh and Lace, After the Snow, and then you can kind of take a hiatus till you get to our last album, Take Me to the Trees. And they're the best three albums, I think, by Modern English. Now, when you, it was a disaster, as you said. Now, didn't you go to form another band called Engine? The Help Engine. Okay, how'd that happen? Yeah, I did. How'd that happen? What what happened? Because you you still want to be a musician, but I I think you had some problems with uh, TVT Records, I think. And then did you just leave before then or after then? No, we just I just got fed up with it and started. I wanted to get back to my roots, you know, start playing pubs and you know get that you know get back to hearing nasty guitar sounds and loud music, and that's what I did. I went and did the Help Engine for a few years. I worked actually. For MTV in London, I was a, a VJ, overnight VJ for MTV for a while in Europe. Um, I bought a house in Thailand. I've got a house in Thailand now, which I go to in the winter. And then Mick Conroy, the bass player, decided that we might get the band back together, and we all did. We contacted Gary, who was living in Thailand, and everybody wanted to do it, so we did. Do you think that's because it's been a long time, and as you said, you guys were childhood friends, and you know that you had some success, but you had problems with the record company. And when we're younger, we, we you know we don't always make the right decisions. Do you think that helped a lot now that you guys got back together? That you're all really in your head space where you know who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when we um, did the first rehearsal, it was like you know water off a duck's back. It was very very easy. You know, we, we got on really well. The music was coming together straight away. It just seemed very natural, really. And, yeah, we all got 
bit more. We're under no pressure because we've got money. So you know, it was it wasn't too difficult to think about get you know doing another record, writing some songs, doing some gigs, and we've done a lot in the last eight years. We've done a lot of stuff in America. We've been on cruises, you know, out of the Caribbean. We played in the Philippines. Been all over Europe. We played London a lot of times. We've made our new album, which we wanted to do, Take Me to the Trees, in 2017. Um, you know, we've done a lot, and we're not ready to finish yet, I don't think. Well, you know, and that's awesome, because you guys, you know, you have a... Uh relationship with each other but now from like 98 to 2002 you travel with a with a new lineup i believe how does that how do you do that how do you find guys that you trust on stage because you guys had a your original band had a camaraderie i just got mates really i just i just got people i knew to come and play with me and it was that was a time of me not knowing what the hell i was doing really um, I just used to tour with these people, play modern English songs, and that was it. But it, it wasn't—it wasn't like the original band. It, it's not like it. That wasn't like it is now. This is the true band, and it does make a big difference. You know, it's, it's pretty obvious that you can't have people just standing in for other people. It doesn't really work. Now you said you were contacted. Your friend was living on a boat, and yeah. was it easy? to get back in sync, to get the band together, or was there some hard spots because, you know, you guys had all gone your own ways? The hard spot was the drummer, Richard Brown. We, we wanted to get him back in, so it was the whole band. But it, it, it was difficult. He, he couldn't do it, really. I mean, he was such an... You know, he's more like a John Bonham, Keith Moon-type drummer. He was very energetic. And I think he got, you know, he just got a bit old for that. And when he, we were rehearsing, it, it just didn't work. So that was a, a problem because we didn't want to have the whole band there. So we had to we had to go back and get a guy called Roy Martin, who we've been working with for years before, and um, he's with us a lot now from Liverpool. Roy Martin. Now, when you went back on that tour in I believe 2010 with everyone except the drummer, how did did, did management come to clubs? I mean, how did they say Modern English is back? Because you know. Luckily for, you know, in America, there's been a big swing in the last 15 years of how 80s stuff is coming back, whether it be movies, music, or TV. Were you an easy band to pitch then? Yeah, I mean, in England, definitely, because the record label 4AD, which we were on, it was home to a lot of underground bands, the Cocteau Twins, the Birthday Party, Nick Cave, you know, all these sort of bands. So it had a kind of kudos to it. So when we when we do concerts, we get people who were really into that label. So you know the band was known from back in the day. People liked the fact it was almost like a heritage act, like a vintage band that meant something to them. So it wasn't difficult. We we you know played to three or four hundred people in London, played the hundred club, the famous hundred club. You know it wasn't difficult. Then we go and do the same thing in Paris or in in wherever in Europe in Amsterdam. Brussels, we do festivals in Europe as well. I mean, we are a known band, but not not like in America where it's a commercial success. Now, with the new lineup, who does most of the writing? I mean, not the old lineup back with the new, like your latest album. Who did most of the writing, or was it a collaborative? On the last album, uh, Take Me to the Trees, Mick Connery, the bass player, put a lot of the the kind of bedding of the of the songs together. The you know the some of the arrangements, some of the chords, and I put vocals. 
vocals on it and Steve the keyboard player would you know tinkle along and then we change bits at rehearsals Gary would put his crazy guitar sounds on top I mean it's generally a, we, we all split everything you know one quarter each out of the four people so even if somebody like I do the lyrics to everything but it's generally a pretty much a, an even split now, where do you get your lyrics from? Do you look at your past life? Do you just hear something? Do you see something you think would be great to write about? Where do you personally get your, your lyrics from in your songwriting process? The lyrics for me, are just, they're just like poetry, really. Um, where do I get them from? I'm, I still sort of, I'm still mining the same areas I've always done, really. Sort of angry. I can get angry about everything quite easily. Um, love, love's really important. I don't know where I get it from is the answer, but I do like to read, you know, different poets, and I do like to read lots of books and, you know, take in a lot of imagery. A lot of my lyrics are, you know, imagery-based and me metaphor-based as well. Um, I don't know where I get it from. Uh, just living, I think. Now, who are some of your favorite poets? I like Charles Bukowski. Everyone, though. Bukowski's great. That's one of the things, you know, his his books are great, his um, his poems are great, and it's funny, when I lived in L.A. for a long time, like, people would go, oh, that's the bar Bukowski used to drink at, so, of course, the bar would get busy, and they're thinking, you know, yeah. it was a big thing. I like his attitude. He's, he's a, bit of a bit of a bastard, really, but I like his attitude. He's a, I, like the, I like the way he talks about, you know, writes about things. Uh, you know, he's got a bit of an, an edge to conscious effort these days to listen to new bands or or do you sit there and listen to the classics I mean as a music listener seeing that you are a musician and you had success what do you what do you like to listen to and where do you find it do you know I don't listen to much music I really don't I, I'll listen to Bach I'll get a classical radio station up as you know just Bach all the way and I'll listen to that and I'll occasionally go onto my YouTube feed, which sends me stuff they think I'm going to like. And that's where I'll find things like Fontaine's DC, who I, who I do really like. But most of the stuff they send me, I'm not interested in it. I've heard it all before. Right. Now, now when you recorded Take Me to the Trees, how have you noticed that the uh, record company has, I mean, not the record business has changed? Is it... Is it easier to put an album together now than it was years ago? Because the easy, you know, you can do a lot more production value for lower money. How have you seen it change? It's massive change. The change is unbelievable. I mean, it's great if, if it's all you've ever known. If all you've ever known is sitting in your bedroom with a logic program and making music, which is what we do now as well to, to write with, then it's brilliant. But it's such a shame that the new bands don't have the chance to to grow really it seems like you, you know you have to be an instant success these days really really fast otherwise 
you're gone in, a, in five minutes, not 15. It used to be that, you know, you got 15 minutes, didn't you? But now it's more like two and a half. Right. <laughs> now... I don't know, it's just, I, I think... Um, the fact that you have to do crowdfunding these days, which is what most people do, um, you know, and you have to sell yourself and you have to do all the social media stuff like Facebook and Twitter and everything like that. It's not anything I'm, in, I'm involved in, really. Mick Conroy, again, our bass player, does all of that, and it's really important. So if you've got no interest in that, then it's very difficult to, to be in a band these days. So you're almost like a cottage industry. You, you do everything. You don't just write the songs and the words. You you do absolutely everything. So it's a massive difference between being on a record company and putting your own music out. Now, what do you in what uh, role do you think videos and MTV took on your guys' career? Do you think if, if that hadn't been around at the time, because no one really watches videos as much anymore, do you think you still would have done well in the U.S. or what? What do you think would have happened to you guys? song also shows up in different commercials do you guys all have to get together and okay that or do advertising agencies come to you or does a company come to you how does that work I mean, did, does, how do you get your rights back? After 35 years, they come back to you. Isn't that insane? You know, we think about it. I always say, God, I'm getting older. But you think 35 years ago and now you get it back. It's like, holy crap. It's like, because I was saying Purple Rain was released yesterday, 35 years ago. And I'm going, oh, my God. I just, it, sound, it seems like it was yesterday. Now, you're going on tour, and it's a great show. It's got uh, Jay Astenstein, Loves Jezebel, uh, you, and The Alarm. Do you know those guys? Did you know those guys? Is that why you're playing together, or did a booking agent do it? Because it is a great show. Toured, we haven't done 35 concerts in a tour in a long time, so it's going to 
Now, what can people expect? I mean, because you have, you know, you have years of history. What can people expect to hear when they go to that concert? And will you do some more of the harder, younger stuff that just a different listening so people maybe hear something they haven't heard before? Now, will you mix it up on different nights, just knowing you have your opener and your closer, or do you pretty much keep to the same set, just because, you know, it's it's probably easier that way? Well, we work hard on making sure the set works, you know, that the energy's at the start, and, you know, it's, it's a bit quieter in places. We probably won't change the set that much, but we've got a new song as well that we're working on called Not My Leader, which we're hoping to release this year for Record, record Store Day. Um, so we're going to try and fit that in the set as well if we can. Now, what was your inspiration for Not My Leader, and uh, and what made you record want to record a new song? Uh, politics, basically. I mean, you know, your side of the pond and our side of the pond are in real trouble at the moment. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely... I didn't think it could get any worse than Thatcher and Reagan, but it has. <laughs> so... What's it like? Hello? What's it go? What's it like going back into the studio to record something new? Because it, you know, I mean, you did a while ago. You did in two thousand sixteen, but now, is it? Do you want to sit there and record that, and then think we're going to record a whole album? No, you t- well, you don't really. I mean, I, this week, for instance, I've written two new songs, or Nick sent me some music that the band sort of did a rehearsal with, and I have just bashed some vocals down quickly, and then another song. You know, I've done at home all the music myself and the words myself, so it's all very different. So it's not like the old days when you go into a rehearsal and you just jam and it all comes out like that. It's all bits, it comes out in bits and bobs these days when you've got time to work at home on your own. So we tend to do songs one at a time. Um, if we were going to do a new album, we'd probably write a load of songs all in one go, but, you know, you don't really need to do albums these days. Yeah, you can do one song at a time or you can do three or four songs or whatever it doesn't have to be an album because there isn't really any such thing as you know artwork on the size I mean vinyl's really popular again but you don't need to do albums now do you miss that because you know that's what one thing as a kid for me when you got your album you knew the you wanted every song to be good you knew the lineup you knew what was going to play what was going to play and it was a special, and I just said also the artwork. I mean, that was one of the things, you know, if someone had lyrics in the album, you were going, holy crap, they have lyrics. You know, it's, I can read through the songs. Do you miss that as a performer, the whole, the concept of a album and just the whole background to it, and just that it was culturally, you know, meant a lot? Yeah, I do. I think it's crazy and stupid and ridiculous and really sad. You know, I mean, that... It just go, fits in with everything else that's kind of going on in modern society, really. It's just a throwaway. Everything's throwaway. So, you know, unfortunately, music is as well to a lot of people. Um, I think it's really sad, you know, that people don't take a whole concept of something on, you know. And everything's just like 
already marginalised and your brain's already small and you don't think outside the box. I think it's really good when you get an album because you look at it as a whole entity, you know, not just one, two minute, three minute thing. Now, what you're coming to the states? What are some of you in from the past and lately? Because you said you've been on the road. What are some of your favorite cities to play? Do you have any cities that you look really excited to be in? Just because, whether it be food or the culture, what do you look forward to when you come? And I know 35 dates, you're not gonna have a lot of time, but any cities you're looking forward to seeing? Um, oh God, I've seen so much of America so many times. I like Austin, Texas, which is where we start. That's a good music town, and that's where we're going to be rehearsing and, and getting ready for the tour. Um, Los Angeles is always good fun and a really amazing architecture as well. San Francisco, the usual places, really. New Orleans is good because the bars are open until 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, places like Charlotte, North Carolina is really beautiful, you know. I like kind of architecture and, and history, so some of the some of the kind of you know Charlotte's really amazing down there. Um, yeah, where else? I'm trying to think on my feet here. Seattle and Portland up the north. Chicago's really good, cool city. You know, New York, of course. I mean, everywhere's got something that in America. It's, it's lot, lots of different countries. Your country, really. Right. I mean, it is crazy. With the what we used to always say because I grew up. Uh, in near Philadelphia, and I lived in LA for years. And a lot of us would we would never say Florida was part of the East Coast, but like it's South. And we would always say there's the East Coast, there's the West Coast, and who cares about the rest except Chicago and Minneapolis because Minneapolis has a very hip uh, music scene. Now you said you're going to New Orleans to rehearse. How long will you guys rehearse before going out on the road? And once you're out on the road, do you rehearse at all, or do you just sit there because you're playing a lot? Now, how do you get around when you're on a tour? I mean, is it, you know, do you have a tour bus or and do you all guys, all all the bands travel together? How does that work? Because there's a lot of guys. No, we're traveling in a Mercedes splitter van, just like a, a black Mercedes van with aircraft seats in it. It's a very fast way of getting around. But the tour buses, um, I think the Alarma guy on the tour bus, they're taking all the equipment with them. So we won't have any equipment with us at all. We'll just travel two venues in this Mercedes van with the guitars in the back. Well, that's great. That's the thing. I got one more. I have one final question for you. And how did you decide to buy a house in Thailand? Well, I like the I like heat. I like the sun. And as you know, in the UK, we don't get a lot of that. I mean, from about November to March or April, you'd be lucky if you see the sky. So. Um, well, I just spent some time traveling in Southeast Asia, and um, I'd been in Thailand. Thailand's quite an easy place to get around. It's not difficult. It's uh, not as hard as somewhere, say, like India. And I decided to buy a plot of land there and, and spend the winters there if I could. And I did that, you know, while the band wasn't back together. Um, and, I, you know, it cost me something like, $50,000 to buy a three-story house there at the beach. Wow. <laughs> and it's gorgeous. It's 
gorgeous there, you know, so, you know, you can spend a dollar a day on a meal, a dollar for a beer, I mean, everything's, I save money by going there, it's is, crazy. Is it safe? Oh yeah, very safe, very you, safe. You don't worry? Safer than London. You don't, well, yeah, of course, you don't worry about monsoons or any of the, any of the tsunamis or anything like that? Well, I want to thank you for coming on, Robbie. Now, the tour is going to be great. Uh, I'm going to try to make it. See, I wanted to try to make it to the Philly show, but it's my fiance's birthday on that Monday, so she usually wants to go away for the weekend. But we're getting married in September. We're getting married in the middle of September, so I'm going to say, well, we really can't go away because we're going to you know, Croatia for our honeymoon. So I'm going to try to make it an Asbury's only an hour from me. They're both close. So, so you know, the website is modernenglish.me and you're starting, when does the tour start? Um, starts on the 19th of July in Austin, Texas. It's actually better to go to the Facebook page. Modern English Facebook page has got more info and it carries all the way through to September the 8th where we finish in St. Petersburg, Florida. So it's a long tour. Well, but people, I want to uh, I want to thank you for coming on. People, go check out Modern English. Go see them perform. Go to YouTube, watch their old videos. Go find their music, listen to it, and don't forget. You know they're a great band and they have a lot of a lot of iconic. I'm not with you is an iconic song in our '80s culture. So remember, also go to my website CooperTalk.net. I have over 700 episodes there. You can email me at Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Follow me on Twitter at CooperTalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, and take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.